One of the great stories of personal transformation that you can find in modern literature is in a book that you probably read as a child, very short book, very easy to read book called Green Eggs and Ham. Most of you are familiar with the story, but if you're not, let me just summarize it. Uh, This guy on the front cover, he has a problem from the very beginning of the book. He has an antagonistic and hostile attitude toward green eggs and ham. Uh, He has that same hostile attitude, in fact, not only toward green eggs and ham, but in fact to his friend, Sam, I am, who wants to share with him the joy of green eggs and ham. This character is never named in the book. If you read the book, you'll never find a name for him. That sort of increases the dark and mysterious nature of his character. The fact that his heart is so hardened against green eggs and ham. Uh, As you progress through the book, of course, you know that Sam I Am takes it upon himself to introduce his friend to green eggs and ham. And so all the way through most of the book, he proposes various alternative places where you might want to eat green eggs and ham, right? In a box, with a fox, in a house, with a mouse, uh, on a train, in the rain, wherever it may be. Our main character, our protagonist, continues to resist. He will not eat them. He will not eat them here or there. He will not eat them anywhere, right? All the way through the book, that is his mantra, Until finally, at the climax of this poignant story, uh, he gives in. He says, okay, I will try them, Sam, if you'll just let me be. And so he tries them, and he likes them. And the book ends with this character saying, I really do like them, right? I like green eggs and ham, as it turns out. And he enjoys the experience of eating them. Now, I read this book quite often over the course of a year to my son, who loved the book partly because his name happens to be Samuel, and so he identified with the character Sam I Am. And uh, so we read it a lot, and as you read the book uh, that much, if you're like me at least, which I don't know how many are, but if you're like me, all of these philosophical thoughts start coming into my mind. Like, how often does this level of dramatic transformation actually take place in a person's life where they are hostile towards something one moment and the next minute suddenly they have changed? And if this guy can change to such a level, I begin to think maybe I can change, right? Right? Maybe I can be a better husband, a better father, a better person. Now, I don't know if Dr. Seuss intended all of that, but maybe he is a doctor of some kind. So maybe that was all in his plan when he wrote this book, right? And so you read that, though, and you go, you know, is that kind of transformation actually realistic? We don't expect people to change that dramatically, Uh, You don't expect somebody who is a staunch liberal to suddenly turn around and be a staunch conservative tomorrow. You don't expect somebody who is a diehard T-sip to turn around tomorrow and become an Aggie fan. That kind of thing takes years of prayer and persuasion. You do not expect uh, somebody who hates cats to be found next week working in the animal shelter, right? Those types of transformations are few and far between. And when they do happen, it causes us to sit up and take notice and to ask, what happened? What is it that this person encountered in their life that caused them to change? The reason we're talking about that theme this morning is because as you read the New Testament, what you find is consistently men and women who come into contact with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ, experience dramatic transformations. People begin to think about their relationship with God in entirely different ways. They begin to think about themselves in entirely different ways. 
There is no greater illustration of that type of transformation in the New Testament, of course, than the conversion of Saul, whom we now know as Paul. He goes from a person who hates Jesus and hates Jesus' people to a person who invests his life in sharing the good news that Jesus is alive. It is the most dramatic conversion that you will read about in the book of Acts, and in the entire New Testament. In fact, it's such a dramatic conversion that, like many of us, uh, there are people who are skeptical whether it is real, right? People who are uh, skeptical of the reality of God or the reality of the resurrection of Christ have proposed all kinds of alternative explanations for what must have happened to Saul on the Damascus Road because it's clear there was some sort of transformation. Something happened, but people have said, well, maybe he was somehow brainwashed or maybe he had a psychological disorder or maybe he had something he ate or took a drug that changed everything about him. And yet what you'll see is that whatever he did experience on the Damascus Road, it's not something that was temporary like like you might expect if you ate a bad taco or took a bad drug or whatever it may be. This is a lifelong transformation that leads this man not only to alter his perspective about Jesus, but to invest the rest of his life in the good news and eventually to die for the good news. There was a man in the 1740s named Baron George Littleton in England who was skeptical of Christianity, and so he decided to try to disprove Christianity. So he went to Oxford with a friend of his, and they did some research on historical Christianity. And what happened was they emerged from that process as Christians. Uh, When they began to study the evidence, they looked at it and said, you know, the evidence for Christianity is stronger than we thought it is. And one of the pieces of evidence that swayed George Littleton was actually the conversion of Saul. He said this, I thought the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity a divine revelation. In other words, this was not a man who was crazy. This was not a man who was a liar. Saul, whom we know as Paul, was clearly a man who had a real encounter with the risen Jesus. And it changed him. It changed everything about him. And as I read Acts 9, the question that I keep coming back to is, do I believe? that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it really can transform even the hardest hearts, even today? Do I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful that those around me, my family, neighbors, friends, who don't know Jesus Christ, who are hostile to Jesus Christ, perhaps, can actually be transformed by the power of God's Spirit and the reality of the risen Christ? Do I believe that? Uh, What's more, do I believe that the gospel and the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead actually has the ability to transform me. Do I really believe, do we really believe, that whatever sin we struggle with, the gospel can defeat? Whatever shame is in our past, the gospel can forgive. Do we believe that? And will we, like Paul, then invest our lives in knowing him and the power of his resurrection? as Paul says in Philippians 3, so that we can know him deeply and others around us can know him deeply and encounter the resurrected Jesus who has the power to transform. We're going to look at what happens to Saul on the Damascus Road from Acts 9 and we'll see all of the areas of his life 
that God's Spirit changes. And keep that question at the forefront of our minds. Do we believe in that type of transformation even today through the power of the gospel? All right, Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at this morning. Start in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So the first thing that we see is that the gospel provides to Saul an entirely new perspective, an entirely new perspective about who Jesus is. Uh, It helps if we go back and understand exactly who Saul is and why it is that he hates Christians and hates Jesus so much. Uh, You get hints of this earlier on in the book of Acts. Remember, if you were with us as we talked about the martyrdom of Stephen a couple of weeks ago, you will remember that as Stephen is being stoned to death, there's this young man, Saul, who's standing by, and the guys who are throwing rocks say, hold my coat. And so Saul is standing by holding their robes and approving of everything that happened to Stephen. From that moment on, he is on fire believing that the gospel is false and he has to destroy the early Christian church. So he begins going into people's homes, into churches, dragging people off, having them arrested and placed in prison, and in some cases executed for the gospel. Now, why did he hate it so much? What you you see as you read through Philippians 3 this, that Paul's identity, Saul's identity, was so bound up in his Jewishness that he believed that the good news was actually a threat. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, he will say. What that means is he was a Jewish man who had Jewish parents who spoke Hebrew. He was not a Hellenistic Jew who spoke Greek. He was proud of the fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the tribe from which the first king of Israel actually emerged, King Saul. So our Saul is no doubt named after that first king of Israel, named Saul. He takes pride in that background, circumcised the eighth day according to the law. He is a Pharisee, meaning he is one of the guardians of the law. He studied under Gamaliel, who was a great teacher of the law in the first century. And one of Gamaliel's primary messages was this, that the way to know God is through obedience to the law of Moses. And that includes going to the temple to offer sacrifices. That includes obeying the rules for purity, the correct washings, the correct things you eat and don't eat, the correct things you touch and don't touch. And when the gospel came along, Jesus and his followers begin to preach that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you no longer actually need to go to the temple to connect with God. That was one of the main messages, remember, that Stephen preached right before he was put to death, was because Jesus rose from the dead, now everybody has access to God because Jesus sent the Spirit. And so now we no longer go to a temple, we are a temple. And that paves the way for the gospel to go into the Gentile world. It is a huge threat to the way of life of somebody like Saul. 
who identifies himself and his significance by his Jewish rule-keeping. And so he hates Christians. And in fact, when some of the Christians flee to Damascus and go to Damascus to try to get away, he says, I'm going to go to Damascus, take a letter from the high priest, and drag them out of the synagogues and bring them back to Jerusalem. That's where we find him. He has a fixed perspective that it is impossible to change apart from the power of God. Uh, some of you will remember a few months ago uh, on Facebook, there was a picture that kept going around on Facebook. It went viral, and this was the photo that went around. Some of you remember this, and uh, you thought, if I see that one more time, I'm going to hurt somebody, right? So I'm sorry to bring back those memories. But here was the controversy about this picture of this dress. Uh, People said, is it gold and white or is it blue and black? Well, apparently, depending upon how your eyes work, you may see it as gold and white or you may see it as blue and black. And people passed this around and they argued about it for weeks on end, it felt like. And uh, I found that it looks to me as gold and white. And now it turns out it's actually blue and black in real life. I never have been able to see it those colors. You know why? Because immediately when I saw it, my mind locked in on one perspective, gold and white, and I've never been able to see it differently, even now that I know it's a different color. I can't see it, the correct color. That's what I mean when I talk about a fixed perspective. Saul's entire life, he had one perspective about who God is and how you come to know him. His mind was locked in to see one color, Right? And that is, you approach God through the law. But here's what happens on the road to Damascus. is Jesus himself appears to Saul. There's a bright light. There's a loud voice. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul. He says his name twice, which if you see that in the Bible, that's usually an indication of emphasis and emotional passion. Uh, they didn't have uh, ways that they could bold type or put it in italics or anything like that. And so they would repeat words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you were persecuting. And at that moment, everything about Saul's perspective has to change. Think of the things that must have gone through his mind. If Jesus is talking to me, he's alive. If he's alive and he has this type of power, he must be the Son of God. And everything about his perspective about Jesus is transformed in an instant. This is the most amazing transformation story, as I said, that we see in the book of Acts. Imagine that you went to Starbucks this week and you were sitting there doing some work and you looked over and you saw Bill Gates sitting a couple of tables away from you. You might look up and go, wow, that's something. Bill Gates is in here. Now imagine you saw him and you looked a little closer and you noticed that he was using a Mac. What would you think? What happened in that man's mind in his heart, to so dramatically change his perspective. It's the same type of transformation that happens in the life of Saul. This man goes from hating Jesus to now the next thing we'll hear him talk about is how Jesus is the Son of God because he encountered him. That's the power of the good news. Saul has a radical turnaround in his perspective about Jesus. Do you and I believe that the gospel has that power to transform even the hardest 
heart. Even the person, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're thinking about this morning that is hostile to the gospel, that is far away from God, and you think that person will not come to know him. The gospel has that type of power to transform even the hardest heart. I read this past week about a guitar player uh, named Johnny Lang. I'm not super familiar with his music. Some of you may be. But beginning at the age of 15, he was a guitar prodigy, particularly playing blues music. Uh, He didn't grow up in a particularly religious family, and so he didn't believe in Jesus. And as a very young man, he began to engage in a difficult, troubled lifestyle, drugs and partying and all kinds of things that drew him away from God. And he said, when people would talk to me about Jesus, I hated it, and I hated them. And I told them, that's something you believe. It's not what I believe. Don't tell me about it. And then he said when he was about 20 years old, He was talking to a friend and he said, it was like a wave came over me that I knew was the spirit speaking. And he said, it was like somebody literally grabbed my heart and all I could say was, it's Jesus. He said in an instant, his perspective shifted because of that encounter with the Holy Spirit. See, I think often we read a passage like Acts 9 and we think that's how God used to work, but he doesn't do that anymore. And yet the gospel is still as powerful today as it was in the day of Paul. Do we believe that it has that power to totally alter a person's perspective about Jesus, even those who are far away from him? When Paul gets a new perspective, that also leads him to a new understanding of his identity. Look at Acts chapter 10, or sorry, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Acts chapter 9, 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. The Spirit of God appears to Ananias, and Ananias has a hard time seeing Paul in a new light. I love his response to God when he begins to speak, really to Jesus when he begins to speak, because I think it's the same response many of us would have. Uh, Jesus appears to him and says, I want you to go find Saul. And Ananias, he goes, let me, uh, let me just remind you who this is. This is not a nice person, Jesus. Uh, if you didn't catch what he did in Jerusalem, let me summarize it for you. He killed Christians, and now he's here, and he's going to kill Christians, and we've heard about him, and that is a bad guy. And Ananias cannot get Saul's previous identity out of his head initially. Right? But you and I would 
probably react the same way. I read a couple of weeks ago about an ISIS fighter, right? A man who was a member of ISIS, who's now saying he has trusted in Jesus, that he's become a Christian. And you read something like that and you go, that is great news. But let me ask you this. If I called you this week and I said, that man is going to be in your home group now while you study the Bible. And by the way, he needs a place to stay this week. Is that okay? You'd be understandably skeptical. Is he telling the truth? Is he lying? Is this real? Do I want him around my family, around my children, in my home? That's how Ananias responds, because he has one perspective on Saul's identity, but Jesus has another. And Jesus' response is, you go, because I have made him my chosen instrument. And I pick him up, and I will use him as I now see fit to share the gospel among kings and Gentiles and the sons of Israel. And as you go through the rest of Acts, Paul is going to share the message with all of those groups. And we'll talk about that in a couple of moments. His whole identity changes. His understanding of his own identity changes. And he goes from the man who hated Christians and hated Jesus to the man who will invest his life in proclaiming the good news. Uh, Most of us, if we're honest, would say there have been moments in our lives where we wished we could be someone else, where we could have a different identity, not identified like we are identified either in our own minds or by other people. I don't want to be the person who struggles with this sin. I don't want to be the person who fits in this particular social strata. I don't want to be who I am. I want to be somebody else. And some of us maybe have made attempts to try to become somebody different. Uh, When I was in college, I had a uh, friend who lived across from me in the dorm my freshman year. His name was Matt. And uh, Matt was a relatively studious, kind of preppy guy, pretty quiet. And uh, we got to know him a little bit our freshman year and then went away for the summer, came back our sophomore year. And uh, I saw him on campus at the beginning of our sophomore year, and he looked totally different. His hair had been dyed blue. He had a number of piercings. He was dressed in the kind of grunge style that was popular when I was in college. He looked completely different. And I said, hey, Matt, how was your summer? And he looked at me and he said, my name is now Dave. And and I said, you look like Matt, like other than the change in your hair and everything, you look like the same person. He goes, I want to go by Dave. And I said, why? He said, I just wanted to be somebody different. And the tragedy, of course, is that all of the change that he made was external. And in a desperate attempt to try to be somebody other than who he was, he changed the only things he knew how to change, right? His hair, his clothes, his name. But as far as I know, the change did not penetrate inside of his heart and mind. What's remarkable about the transformation of Saul's identity is it begins in his heart and mind and it works its way outward so that he becomes this beacon of the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to the entire world. He thinks about his identity in entirely different terms. Do you and I believe that the gospel has that power to recast our identity so that we no longer see ourselves in connection with our sin or in connection with our past shame. We no longer think, I am the person who gets angry. I am the person who struggles with lust. I am the person who has this past history. 
or maybe we currently identify ourselves with our accomplishments. I am this job. I am this accomplishment, this grade, this major. And yet what the Spirit of God does is say, no, your primary identity is as a child of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul begins to see that his identity has been totally recast. He no longer identifies himself with his Jewishness, with his accomplishments under the law, with his self-righteousness, but instead he says, if I'll boast of anything, it's going to be in Jesus Christ because I am identified with him. That becomes who he is. And Jesus himself says, I will re-identify this man. It's interesting that we now know him as Paul. After his conversion in the New Testament, he is consistently called Paul, whereas before he's called Saul. What's interesting is there's no real difference or significant difference in the meaning of those two names. But it is interesting that one is a Hebrew name and the other is a Greek name. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name. What I find fascinating is that this man who was so deeply identified with his Jewishness after he encounters Jesus is now for the rest of history primarily known by a Gentile name because his mission became one of expanding the borders of God's mercy and grace beyond the Jewish people. And so he took the gospel all the way into the Gentile world. And because he's so connected with that Gentile mission, we remember the name Paul, because of how Jesus transformed him. A number of years ago, there was a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, who was a professor, a liberal professor at an academic institution. And she uh, was not a Christian by any means. In fact, her area of study was feminist studies, and she was opposed to the gospel. She was opposed to anything that would threaten her understanding of the world. Uh, She lived in, in that day, this was in the 90s, what we would have called an alternative lifestyle sexually. She was not a person who was connected to God, and in fact, she hated the gospel. Uh, She began to write some articles for newspapers and various publications uh, at the time attacking the Promise Keepers movement because she felt threatened by it, felt that her lifestyle was threatened by it. Uh, And she began to receive hate mail from people who disagreed with her as well as support mail from people who agreed with her. And she said, none of that mail really affected me until I got one letter from a Christian pastor who wasn't angry, he wasn't hateful, but he gently questioned my worldview. And he said, what if you're wrong? What if God is real? What if Jesus rose from the dead? What would that say about your identity, about your viewpoints, about who you are? And it began a process of the Spirit breaking down her understanding of who she was and of who Jesus was until she became a Christian. And in her uh, testimony that she wrote in Christianity Today, this jumped out to me. She said, uh, thinking of her previous life, Has all this been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day I came to Jesus. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And all of that began with that question, who am I? Am I identified with a way of life that I have chosen and cling to? Am I identified with something I've done? 
Or do I say, God gets to define who I am? And so from that moment on in the life of Paul, his identity is different. He's identified now with Jesus. And so are you and I, if we know Jesus. Do we believe the gospel has that power to transform our understanding of who we are? Paul's understanding, new understanding of his identity, then leads finally to a new understanding of his mission. Look at verses 19b down to 30. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. I love this. Saul's mission now transforms from one of destroying the church to one of building up the church. He went to Damascus to kill Christians, and now we find him standing in the street in Damascus sharing Jesus. And what's remarkable is as you read the description of Paul's ministry now, it bears a clear resemblance to the ministry of Stephen before Stephen is put to death. Remember, what was Stephen doing? He was standing in Jerusalem arguing with who? The Hellenistic Jews about who Jesus was right before he was put to death. And here is Paul, the man who stood by approving of his death and holding the coats of those who stoned him. Here is that same man now in Damascus arguing with the Hellenistic Jews that Jesus is the Son of God and confounding them with wisdom from the Spirit. His entire sense of mission transforms. And so Paul went all throughout the ancient world. If you have a Bible with maps in the back, at some point just today, flip to those maps or go online and find some maps of the missionary journeys of Paul, the four missionary journeys he took, and then the final journey he takes to Rome. And what you'll see is that he went all the way through the ancient world from Jerusalem all the way over eventually to Rome. He went to Asia Minor. He went to Greece. He went to Italy. And he took the gospel everywhere because he was so on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God so transformed his heart on the Damascus Road. F.F. Bruce, uh, New Testament scholar, says this, no single event apart from the Christ event itself, has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. This man who hated Jesus and hated his people now becomes an instrument God uses to expand the church beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth. 
all of us are familiar with a common theme in literature, and that is that uh, love transforms. It's not uncommon to see a movie or read a book where the protagonist is driven by his love for a woman. And so everything he does on his mission is in order to win the heart of this woman or to protect this woman or to create a better world for this woman. Many of you will remember the 1980s movie, The Princess Bride. And if you remember The Princess Bride, you know the main character, Wesley, his primary phrase that he uses when talking to Princess Buttercup is what? as you wish, all the way through the movie, as you wish. Whatever she wants, he will do. And his love for her becomes the driving force behind everything he does in that movie, his desire to overturn and defeat the evil prince Humperdinck and bring peace to the kingdom is all because he loves her. He's so driven by his love for her, he's even willing to risk death. When Saul encountered the risen Jesus... Through the power of the Spirit, his heart is so transformed to be in love with Jesus that he says, I will take the rest of my life to share this message. And his mission in life is completely transformed. I mean, it is 180 degrees opposite from where it began. So that in the book of Colossians, he puts it this way, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. In other words, the mission of my life is that everybody knows Jesus, everybody draws close to Jesus, that everything I do is oriented around that goal, so that at the end of his life, he'll write this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And he wrote that book shortly before he himself was executed for his faith in Jesus Christ. His mission transformed. Everything about Saul transformed. He has a new perspective, a new identity, a new mission, because he realized that the gospel is true. It's true. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then the reality is there is nothing that God cannot accomplish. There is no person too far gone that they cannot be redeemed. There's no sin in your life or mine that is too powerful for him to win victory over it. There's no shame from your past, nothing that you have done that he cannot forgive. The world can never get so bad that God cannot fix it. See that? There is transforming power in the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul realizes if he's alive, then all of it is true. And that is the theme of virtually everything he's going to write and everything he's going to say for the rest of his life. So do we believe that the gospel has that type of power? Are you and I willing to ask God to change, first of all, our view of Jesus? Maybe that you're here and you don't yet know Jesus. Maybe that uh, you want to change, you want to experience transformation, and you've bumped up against wall after wall after wall because you, like all of us, lack the ability to change. It may be that God is speaking to you this morning through his word to say that transformation begins at that point that we understand who Jesus is.
that the Son of God died in our place to forgive us of our sin and rose again so we can have eternal life. And because he's alive, all who trust in him have eternal life. All who trust in him receive the Holy Spirit and his power. And so will we ask God to change our perspective about Jesus? It may be you believe in Jesus, but like me, you struggle with believing that maybe he can't quite deal with whatever I'm facing internally. He can't quite deal with my understanding of myself or my sin or my world. Will we ask God to change our view of his power? Secondly, will we ask God to change our view of ourselves? Say, I'm no longer identified with sin, with death, with the prideful ways I think about myself or even the words others may have used to label me. But I am identified as a child and now a servant of God in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, will we ask God to change our mission in life? Will we ask him to give us the ability and the power through his spirit to invest our lives in proclaiming this good news with everybody we know who needs to hear it? If Jesus is alive, then the power of God is more than sufficient to transform even the hardest heart, even our hearts, to remake us into his image. Do we believe that? And will we ask God for that transformation through his spirit so we can be vessels like Paul to share that message with our world? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for this time. And we confess that often our view of you and your power is way too small and inadequate. I pray that we would understand who you are better and we would allow you to reshape our perspective on life, on Jesus, on ourselves, on our mission for life. I pray we would listen to the voice of your spirit as he leads us. I pray we would invest the time and energy necessary in prayer and in the reading of your word that we can hear how you want us to change. And I pray we'd trust you over the course of our lives to make those changes. We pray like you did with Paul. Make us your chosen instrument to be ambassadors to the world of the good news. We're thankful for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.